homelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. press it. It's God Damn America with your host, Jake Flores. Whoa. Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. And introducing little baby Alex. And I'm turning away from the camera because I'm shy and I don't want you to look at me. And the show is starting. It's Pod Damn America. Woo. How long does this drop go? I, I think it just goes done. until you turn it right. off. It's just not 30 seconds. I didn't want it to do this. This is insane. And introducing Smoothie Turn. And now, George Clooney. <laughs> Okay, holy shit. It just goes, I guess, until you turn it off. Wow. We that, were just experimenting with Soundgourd and uh, stumbled upon some, some mixes. Let's explain what's happening. The sa- So there is this thing called a Roadcaster Pro that <laughs> people started selling, or that Roadcaster started selling. People started selling this thing. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I, I get it off all the streets. On the streets of Manhattan. <laughs> it's a funny product because it's a little, like, mixing board for losers to start podcasts with that's in the copy on their website most mixers are not for podcasting because mixers were invented before this specific thing that people started doing with them Mm -hmm. so it's for podcasting and like sometimes you meet a guy who's like i i spent my savings on i'm gonna be a podcaster too and they have this exact mixer right Mm -hmm. so we got one a couple years ago, and that's why we have those Halloween sounds on the other one, which is at Alex's house, because that's the one we've had for a minute. We bought another one because there's multiple studios and podcasts going on. You never know when a podcast is going to break out so in we this have, city. We have, an old, we have a whole empire. This one's fresh Every out neighborhood the box. In NYC, we have a studio. That's right. We're coming. We're going to install one of these things. We're going to find three fat guys to talk about movie opinions and we're they're gonna live in your house um but this is fresh out the box so they have these fucking soundboards on them we programmed the other one this is the stuff that comes with the the mixer for podcasting the first button is that like 90s sitcom guitar riff intro thing that i think the implication is you would use as the intro to your podcast. Yeah, so you can get rocking. Kind of it feels like a radio show thing. In a way. It's, it's yeah. anywhere there's some where everyone's rocking. It reminds me of Full House or something. Like it evokes all these visual It's Full House if you like let everybody like get a little older or a little edgier. You know, like some of those little kids, you couldn't play this kind of the guitar <laughs> around these little kids. You couldn't put these like pedals in, in the situation. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is, like, are there a lot of people in the world who bought this podcast machine and then 
that's as far as they got creatively and then are using this as their intro. I know you want to do it. <laughs> yeah. I think if you stopped it like right there, like that's an intro. Welcome to the Anti-PC Podcast. We're going to talk about women and how white people have it hard these days. This is what 99% of podcasts are, right? Yeah, they do, they're do. they doing really well, though, too. Like, they're definitely on to something about women and their lies. Yeah. Women, their lies are out of control. You know what I think about women? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so sometimes I'll see a woman excluded from the workplace, and I'll think... That's right. <laughs> Big laugh on that one. <laughs> it's really good. There's another five seconds of the laugh. Yeah, this one just. It, there was going. women laughing in that though. So. There are. Well, they know it's funny. They know it's funny. We're playing around here, but also I'm serious, and I'm <laughs> I'm getting some guys together. We we're intimidating the streets. Yeah, uh, you know what I think about cancel culture. It's coming to get all of us. This is the best we've ever done with the buttons. We're going to make a million dollars, dude. Honestly, it could come for us because I have a feeling that perhaps <laughs> that rock track... Anders is just like, I've molested someone yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, that, those guitar licks sound like they could be copy written, and maybe this is like a poison pill to get people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe somebody dude. wrote the, that just to sue people again. who used the Rotocaster. Yeah. It's for your personal use. It's like, you know, when you, when you would buy a, a piece at a tobacco shop and like, oh, yeah, I'm using this for tobacco for sure. Oh, yeah, my water pipe could right. really uh, use a christening. Yeah, when you buy the Rotocaster, someone's supposed to say to you, hey, yeah. just so you know, these drops, they're only for personal use. You can't broadcast them to anybody. Is there anything- they don't, and then you get nabbed. Is there anything better than when you leave the head shop with your new water pipe and spark that thing up for the first time and it's like... Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Actually, that sounds like a really good vibe. Smoking weed Dang. to that music. Just be like, yeah, <laughs> life is so fun. It'd have to be a sativa, right? Yeah. Which one's up? A sativa. Oh, Indica, more like Indicouch. That's how I remember it. That's a ri- I've had like 10 years to figure this out. I've gotten nowhere. <laughs> Although it could. There's only two. It's not hard. <laughs> it could be confusing because if you're a cat, in the couch is like that's an exciting afternoon. It's oh like yeah, reading, you can run around. You read them, right? We've discussed. We can't go back to this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is? Is that I always learn the difference between indica sativa and then smoke weed immediately and like forget everything I've learned. Yeah, man, it do be like that. That's just something I noticed about weed. No, I don't want to do this part. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it after the first part. It just keeps going and going. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole ass song. Yeah. Uh, Fuck, man. Well, you know who else keeps going and going? Migrants through the American borders to the <laughs> south. Especially, and sometimes, without their own consent. And yeah. that's what we're talking about this week. Um, Should we start with the story or this clip? Because, like... You kind of have to know what's happening. Yeah, we got to introduce the clip. Um, so here's the long and short of it. Wait, wait, don't you have the mermaid clip yeah. lined up? 
Oh, right. Shit. <laughs> I mean, hey, man, let's although, just start you know what? the podcast you know over, what? man. <laughs> Mermaids are migrants. Mermaids are migrants. Mermaid, they're migrating between fish and women. I'm always saying this. I have a podcast where we rant about mermaids. Mer- how, hold on. Mermaids are not migrants. They're very definitively in the sea. Well, the sea is up. most of the planet. When they, well, the mermaid everybody's familiar with, Ariel, is a, is a migrant. Like Everyone's she immigrates. Familiar she with totally Ariel. assimilates to... Right. Oh, she is, isn't yeah. she? What is that supposed to be? She Europe? could even have a, a like legal recourse for her flight to land because she has to leave the sea because like her father doesn't want her. It's like a dangerous situation for her. Mm-hmm. There's sharks. You know how... Disney movies are often like like the Lion King is Macbeth or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like they have these meanings for like adults. Is the Little Mermaid a racist movie about like immigration for racist adults? And that you actually are supposed to read it backwards and be like, it's bad that she wants to come out of the water and into our world. To oh, marry I, one of our men and then create an anchor baby, essentially. Yeah, which I is a actually, nautical term. I, <laughs> I was thinking about it the other way because you know there's that old line in the uh, the song "Grand Old Flag." It's like "Let old acquaintance be forgotten." That is yeah. the New Year's like, Eve song. <laughs> God damn it! Uh, you're supposed to shed all of your memory, all of your cultural heritage. And you could become totally, fully, one hundred percent American. You should like forget how to talk if you can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which they do to Ariel in a way because she can't talk. She communicates in another way. That's underwater. why I said it. And then yeah, she she kind of reverses that too. And yeah, like, she, she can't talk when she's on land. Yeah. She can't talk. She gives up her voice. She's like like her gills start squealing <laughs> and shit. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's this you know kind of cute meat cute thing where Eric, Eric like. Eric Trump is like Eric Trump. Say his full name, Eric Trump. (laughs) (laughs) She she's so in love with Eric Trump. She abandons her family. Donald got the idea to name his son Eric. I I guarantee you, is from the Little Mermaid. From the Little Mermaid, which is why his other kids are Sebastian, (laughs) um, the Chancellor, (laughs) and Ariel. Yeah, and his daughter Yuri. uh, Oh shit! What's the name of the sea witch? Ursula, oh, Ursula, the sea Ursula. witch. I oh. couldn't get it until I said sea witch. It was buried in my mind. Um, with this introduction, it makes way more sense to talk about the mermaid first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're into it. <laughs> Big, hot political item. <laughs> yeah, we, sorry. Veered off into mermaid territory. This okay. is the topic of the week that I chose yeah. uh, that I think is important to socialism and overthrowing capitalism and the the and, uh, important hard-hitting political issues is the Little Mermaid. These are the issues of the day is they've made a mermaid. They made a live-action mermaid. Yeah. And she's black, and people are losing their goddamn minds. It's almost too easy. Like, they they just do stuff like this now, knowing that the culture war thing is going to pop off. Everyone's going to have a good time arguing. Everyone's going to make a bunch of money, and then we all go home, you know? Yeah. Uh, they're what? all recording their daughters watching it to be like, <laughs> oh, really? is my daughter racist? <laughs> Let's find <laughs> out. Let's see if she flies into a rage at this. 
<laughs> this is like remember when Go- Lady Ghostbusters came out, and then people were we were all supposed to be mad at the uh, there were like you know sexists that were going to not watch it, and then we had to buy tickets to fight them and stuff. Yeah, this is no, just- I, yeah I remember being like, oh come on, get over it. So the women, you should you know support. And then I never went to see it. Right. Yeah. I saw it. It was kind of bad, but you had to be like, it was good. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't like the first Ghostbusters. Really? I wasn't going to watch another version of it. No. (laughs) You liked the second one. You're sexist. The second one where the city's full of goo, now they were on to something there. Uh, But no, their whole tone for it is ghosts are real, but we're having a fun time. Grow up. That's scary. You need to take the situation seriously if you're going to bust the ghosts. I actually think it help destigmatize ghosts for kids including myself i was not ghosts should be stigmatized is what i'm saying they're uh, forbidden spirits if they're real there's nothing we can do about it yeah but they're uh, if they're lingering you have to help banish them not necessarily some of them are peaceful some of them are whimsical and fun aren't usually the thing with ghosts is they have a grudge of some terrible kind and that's why they they're left behind they have a grudge some a hand comes out of the back of your head in the shower with the grudge. Is Ghostbusters an allegory about immigration? Are they ice? Are they? Yeah, they are. Kind, they, are way, yes. well, they are for ghosts. They are for ghosts. Yeah, they're ice. Well, they're ghosts. colonialists because they're you know Sorry, the liberals. Were there before the people, right? And then indigenous ghosts. Them out. Yeah, that's the main thing about ghosts. Where I'm not like really worried about them is like if they were real, like America would be chock full of ghosts. <laughs> there are so many people who got murdered here. <laughs> <laughs> You should be running around everywhere. Everyone in America dies angry. <laughs> no one is happy. Yeah, they would be all ghosts. No one goes to heaven or hell here. You just would be, you know, pissed off and in an apartment. I mean, I haven't done it myself, but my understanding is dying hurts every time. So, like, there can't be that many people who are like, no, oh, it's good. It's my time. Yeah. Are they frozen at the point of death, though? That's them being frozen. <laughs> I could be a... I answer the question. <laughs> I don't know if I've told this story before. I Some people think I'm a ghost. <laughs> That's a story you have? Yeah. That's just not... Okay, it sounds like a thing you would just say, but yeah, okay, tell, tell me the story. My aunt, like, you know, several decades Someone ago... Someone in your family thinks you're a ghost? Isn't your mother kind offended of. that your aunt thinks you're a ghost? <laughs> Maybe. she gave you life that things ghosts don't have? They'd have to have it out i guess but uh several a few decades ago my aunt was sitting down for dinner and she just and my grandfathers were both uh dead before i was born um and she just felt the presence of my grandfather Uh she like felt him in the room and started yeah she started crying I think she started. I don't know. Um, and then, she, like, I thought it was she a laugh. Collects herself. About a half hour goes by, and she gets a call from my dad, who tells her, "Oh, we just had a son thirty minutes ago." Oh, and that's why you're like an old man, baby. I guess. So. Oh wait, so the ghost went into you, like Paymon. Like Paymon. I guess so. Or uh, it could you just got Paymon'd a... by your grandfather, you're saying? <laughs> Possibly. You cut off your head to get him out of there? <laughs> He's not evil, though. He was you, you know, go to a counseling. music teacher. He's a nice man, as far as I know. Yeah, he's a lot like this guy I know, actually. 
Drinking Kratom all the time. <laughs> He's biking around you know, everywhere. He, but maybe he tried Kratom. That's actually maybe he not invented out of Kratom. He was stationed in the South Pacific, so it's possible. Really? That would explain so much about you. It's you not were... impossible if you were a ghost that invented Kratom. <laughs> it would answer a lot of questions I've had. Anyway, back to the uh, little yeah, People are mad because the mermaid's black. Let's listen it's to a, a dumbass talk about yeah, it. Yeah, okay. This is Matt Walsh. Also, by the way... With the Little Mermaid, can, can we also just mention that just from, from, a, from a scientific perspective, okay, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have someone with darker skin who lives deep in the ocean. I mean, if anything, I mean, not only should the Little Mermaid be pale, she should actually be translucent. If you look at <laughs> deep sea creatures, they're like translucent. They have no kind of pigmentation whatsoever. Why and they're just like these horrifying, <laughs> they look like skeletons floating around in the ocean. That's what the Little Mermaid should look like. She should be totally pale where, and skeletal where you can see her skull through her face. That'd be cool. And that would actually be a version of Little Mermaid that I would watch. Okay. <laughs> he is kind of onto something there. I mean, he's onto something, but unrelated to the original thing he's talking about. <laughs> I mean, they probably wouldn't have flesh at all, if we're being real with it. They, I mean, it would be it, sea beasts. Right. That's kind of the inconsistency is she has a scaly bottom. There's no, then, all the mammalian developments would be inefficient for the sea. Yeah. That's but then why it's, it's like, then it wouldn't be a mermaid anymore. It wouldn't be a mermaid anymore. It has to be half human. What's like the you most? Be a mermaid anymore? <laughs> <laughs> what's the what's the most seductive fish you've seen? Where you've been like, this could be my fish, puffer fish. I, uh, right, like like. Is there any? Fi- <laughs> I'm trying to think if there is a fish that kind of looks like it has big naturals in a way where if I was a sailor, I could mistake it for a mermaid, and then that would be scientifically the fa- the fact of is, it. Isn't there a Pokemon that the, that's a sexy fish? That's a Vaporeon. We don't have time to get into that. We People don't have try time to fuck to them on the internet. But we don't have time to get into that. Mer- mermaids, like the myth of mermaids comes from sailors being really horny and then seeing like manatees or some shit. Yeah. And then, you know, mythologizing them as like sirens. Manatees are bountiful. They're just kind of smooth. I They're think. smooth. They got a lot. They got a lot packed in there. I mean, they're <laughs> ugly as fuck in the face, but well, they're, they're not just ugly. They, I mean, they're ugly for humans, I guess. If, I yeah, mean, I mean, they're cute for. They look like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have like whiskers and tusks. <laughs> they're, 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 I think they're great. But I, their bodies are just these like shiny, floppy. Like I could kind of see where this is going. This is why people said you should fuck a Vaporeon, right? Is because they like. Which again, we are not talking Which we about. Don't have time to get into because there isn't any time. Okay, but yeah, uh, that I mean, that doesn't explain why you would be racist towards the movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just doing what we're doing, but he's like, I'm serious. <laughs> like, that was a funny point. Yeah, if you think about it, the mermaid should look like a skeleton or whatever. It should have a light on the end of her nose. The people who really don't want the black James Bond make more sense to me than the people who don't want the black Little Mermaid. Because there hasn't been a live action Little Mermaid. There's been like 20 James Bonds. <laughs> if you were being a stickler for it, I could see where you were like, no, this one looks too different. Although it's all fucking uh, the made up toy bullshit. So that's really not worth staking your uh your foot in the ground on i think that we should compromise with these scary maga hat people and meet in the middle well we it's we get black ariel but then we give them you know the sabat the lobster that's jamaican we just Mm. turn him into like a good old boy oh 
Or like, Ariel, you gonna <laughs> you gonna you missing out all the clam gumbo up there? Or we make Sebastian <laughs> white. We make him a. a that's a more natural predict. Well, a good old boy is. Well, that's what right? I mean. No, but he I mean, be like, a black he's still boy. he's still Rasta, but he's a white guy doing Rasta. Uh, it's, it's like Nathan Fielder is Rasta Sebastian. Yeah, I'm a just and he comes out of the show. Lobster boy. <laughs> the plan: trade your voice to the sea witch to get around on on foot on the land and marry Donald Trump's son. <laughs> Does anyone remember the plot of this movie? That's it. I, I, I just rewatched it, it recently. Yeah. <laughs> I just the only thing about this is really funny is that like um no one's gonna watch this, right? Like all these like angry men are like I think the implication is that they were going to watch The Little Mermaid, but now they're not, is what they're kind of trying to argue. And yeah, it's their like, Friday night's ruined. I was planning on purchasing all me and my boys were gonna go down to the movie theater all of my whole biker gang and watch The Little Mermaid together. When I see this on at the bar, I threw a bottle through the screen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's going to be the next live action? Because there's Mulan, uh, now this. What they have, you know, Cinderella. What's the weirdest one they could do? <clears throat> live Lion action. King. But they did that. They did, live yeah. Lion King? They did, they did do that. that, didn't they? That was a huge thing. And the fact that I didn't remember that happened... I think really is an important note for the story <laughs> where it will be three days from now and no one will remember the little mermaid. Anymore. Yeah. You know, what's good. And about monarchy, actually uh, great mouse. And detective. Fuck. Oh, which they should redo with people. That could be good. Yeah, I agree with that. What race would they be though? Is the question, but what race would they be? All of them would be. God, it makes me makes me bob my head every time I hear it. Da, 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 da. Uh, I th- I think they'd be Asian. It's like Wesley Willis or something. I won't be explaining myself. It's what just something I was raised to believe. Maga guy that's really mad about the new Fantasia movie because the broomsticks are woke. Well, he's getting a handout. Yeah, this guy he's getting a handout from the wizard. What? The welfare state when you just get uh, broomsticks to work for you. When I was a young boy, I had to use the broom. I just solemnly mop, <laughs> which is what he's doing at the beginning of the thing. They see Mickey when he's at his lowest and are like, good. That's how the help should be. <laughs> Bill's character. And do you remember when the wizard catches Mickey? Do you remember when he catches Mickey? Because he is quite cross. He's uh, scary, yeah. I Although the, his, the level of his transactions were, I mean, uh, transgressions were quite severe at that time. I was a young man. My wizard beat me, and I turned out good. <laughs> <laughs> what I mostly remember Fantasia is like like firework style, like color sort of palettes and things. And uh, I'm trying to think of a way they could get offended at that, but I'm I'm sure they could do it. Like it's hmm. a woke display. This you new know, movie's turning the youths gay with its beautiful art. Too much fuchsia. Uh, yeah, the main thing I remember about The Little Mermaid, because I'm, I feel very secure in saying this, is that King Triton is fucking caked up. He has, <laughs> his muscles are huge. They're like pillows all around his body. It's crazy. It's crazy looking at him and then looking at her and being like, you two are related somehow. I don't know why you're not bulging out of your weird fish skin. Do you remember 
in the original movie how there were all these like urban legends about disgruntled artists who worked on the film, and then if oh, yeah. you stop the tape at a certain frame, you can see like they drew in like a dick that flops out of the Sultan's pants at one point and stuff like that. <laughs> I've heard about that. I haven't. I haven't put in the time. There, I think they're real. Like I remember. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe quote me on that. But like I remember watching this. You know, it like when I was a kid and and finding them and stuff. And then there's even like people say like, oh the that they made like the shape of the castle that they live into this like H.R. Geiger penis thing or whatever. Nice. How would I miss an H.R. Geiger penis castle? It's like well, subliminal. It's, like, if it's H.R. Geiger, it. it probably doesn't look like a human penis, right? <laughs> yeah, it looks like a xenomorph penis. But like, uh, my point is, you think they're gonna like they're gonna woke up this stuff? Oh, oh, I hope not. You're gonna make it a black dick, you know? Uh, ah. <laughs> that's what making it woke means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I agree. I have nothing. I have nothing to add to that. That's a perfect observation. You know, what, you know what I discovered recently on Disney Plus. There is a wait for it. You gonna do a drop? I was going for the clap, but I couldn't find it. Sorry, I just... I'm scared to hit the buttons now. <laughs> There's an animated series about Ariel's life pre Little Mermaid from like the early '90s, and there's one where there's just a war. What? Yeah, there's like a war between... A sea war? A sea war. It's pretty cool. That's pretty the cool. The fact that things have come to sea war. Yeah, so I'm hoping they remake that. That's the thing about Mulan is like, I didn't see the live action one, but well, I, the great, the brilliance of the Disney movie... Speak on it. ...is it has something for everybody. It's got... Eddie Murphy. There's the music, the singing. There's the sort of the fluffy little romance. There's humor... That adults can enjoy sometimes, and there's Eddie also Murphy? violence. Is it not Eddie Murphy? He's in Shrek, but that's, no. I don't who's think that's Mushu? Disney. Oh yeah, that wait. Is that Eddie Murphy? I'm going to look it up before I say so I don't get canceled. <laughs> I don't think I'll be canceled for this one. I think because it's Mushu. Back in my day, Eddie it's, Murphy was Mushu. Yeah. Eddie Murphy is Mushu. Is Mushu. I know Never I haven't mind. remembered a single actor in the correct role they've ever portrayed, <laughs> but I was right about Mushu. I thought it was somebody else. But they also have, here's what I was going to say, they also have action for the stereotypically little boys. Um, Wait, what? <laughs> they have action in Disney movies. Oh, and Mulan, okay. the coolest thing about it, there was a war. fireworks, speaking of fireworks, fireworks cannons. Yeah. And so what do they do in the live? Do they actually blow people up with fucking fireworks and shit? And like, are they cutting yeah, each other's see, heads off? And, that's pretty cool. And are they going to do that in Little Mermaid? Mermaid? Yeah. So there wait a, a minute. War. Eddie Murphy is both Mushu and the Donkey? Yeah. That's weird. Is it weird? It's, or is he just kind of doing Eddie Murphy around town? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just like now I'm imagining that they might meet at some point in some sort of universe crossover. Oh, I hope they don't. I mean, Mushu, am I remembering this correctly? Does he have shape shifting? Uh, I think he's a little dragon and they want him to be a big dragon. But I, I, I'm, I'm loosely remembering. I think that people were offended by Mushu. Okay. And that's why he's not in the reboot. <laughs> ah. Also, because it would be hard to do a live action talking Eddie Murphy, Tiny Dragon. It would be too hard. Technology isn't there yet. I mean, maybe they, they could get do it. the real Eddie Murphy to just put on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> and just follow Mulan around. Yeah, just be screaming. That's a pretty good like, idea. All right. 
All right. Yeah, but anyway, the migrants are being treated as political tools <laughs> well, in this no, country. Well, no, I got to segue for this. So <laughs> if you're mer people, you're probably going to post up near Martha's Vineyard. That's that's true. Right? Because, you know, the sailors, there were a lot of them around Massachusetts back in the day. And uh, you're going to be want to be close to uh, people of your kin. If you do have to interact with people, you want the most powerful ones. Well, with mass fishing, you might actually be caught in one of their giant nets and dragged to your death. At Martha's Vineyard, they caught the little mermaid and cooked her and ate her, <laughs> and that's why we had to make a new one. They just ended up in a fish and chips, which I found out at the New York Aquarium recently. A lot of times it has shark in it. Really? Yeah, because they end up killing way too many sharks and... Then you just gotta I've throw them in there. To try shark fin. This is fucked up, but you think if you cooked the bottom of the little mermaid? Yeah, no, that would be like a shark. Be like a big ass, like like a tuna, probably. Tunas like are almost like the size of a person. She's huge. She's huge. What if we found out she that the tuna on the Epstein like <laughs> Murray? Oh, we got a cat. We have a cat in every one of our studios. Yeah. He's trying to. He's blocking me from the mic. Anders right and now. Murray have a lot of tension between the two of them. He was scratched before the recording started. He literally cursed me. You can if you remember Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> the and fact that, okay, that you just hold that against it to him. Me. Sock it to me, Murray. Um, you can just pick him up and put him on the ground if he's in the way. It's okay. All right. So it's was your segue that? Well, I was going to say the Epstein, I bet on the Epstein Martha's Vineyard tapes, they're doing something nasty to the Little Mermaid. <laughs> oh, no. Jesus Christ. Well, there's no time to go Eating into her. that. Go anyway, on. a different upsetting thing is that um, migrants uh, across the Texas border, you got to pull it. Okay, so before we get into this, pull out a chart. Get a cork board out at your house because there's like a few moving pieces here. Um, Venezuelan migrants were crossing the Texan border last week. They were then uh, abducted from the house they were staying at. Uh, by a woman who identified herself as Perla, who told them there were jobs and housing waiting for them on a plane and food. <laughs> oh. And that they could have their documents, you know, certified or whatever in their work Wait, papers. she told them this in Texas? Yeah. Okay. They get on the plane. They are then forced migrated to... Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, which is a, I think, a version of a war crime under a forced migration. Um, they get off the plane in Massachusetts. No one knows where they're coming there or has any idea why there is a plane full of migrants there. The one behind this was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, <laughs> who is not involved in the state of Texas at all, but wanted to prove a point to... I, to liberals or something that you here's some migrants weren't there the, i thought abbott was in on it too from texas i think well he sent a busload of migrants to new york before so he started the game okay and i and think he, he was trying to, to the, outdo him by flying them to massachusetts but it's like if you if you were trying to meet up with someone in the like south or central of texas <laughs> and then were essentially just like kidnapped to an island on the other side of the country, you'd be so fucked. These people are, like, seriously fucked. The implication here is supposed to be liberals. You claim to love immigrants, and yet you're all rich elites that live in Martha's Vineyard. How would you like it if you actually are the ones that have to deal with them in your face? Because we, me, the governor of whatever the fuck, Florida, I have to... 
the logic is, you know, there and stupid, but like this is insane, yo. Like how It's really like actually a crime in several ways. How did he organize the flight? Cuz I mean like did he just buy the tickets or did he just he use like chartered a plane, I think. Government powers to to it's probably like 10,000 bucks to do the whole thing, but it's just like really uh, complicated and insane to do. Not to mention really cruel to all of these families they kidnapped yeah. and sent to Massachusetts, where it gets very cold, people. I feel you like you need a coat up there. You get used for a political stunt like that. They should like, they should just let, they should take care of those dozen people or whatever, you know? You may be entitled to compensation. Yeah. For being comp- uh, uh, kidnapped. <laughs> The um, Isle of Martha's Vineyard, someone was saying this, uh, a friend of ours from from Massachusetts, that because people were surprised in a way because they were sort of welcomed uh-huh. by the residents of MV. But apparently a lot of people who live there year-round are um, like low-income people who are hired to like, you know. They yeah, you know who really work of the just room. saw them and went, oh, there's more gardeners. We ordered these people, right? There's oh, a lot of work. Brazilian people there. There's like a whole Brazilian really? community and there's like a big heroin problem on everyone who lives in Martha's Vineyard and the Cape. Really? Because there's like the population like quintuples over the summer and all the rich people go to their houses yeah. and then the people who live there year round are like usually they're like they're not like poor because they work on these rich people's houses and like make a lot of money doing that like the okay. construction companies and stuff a lot of people work service too and those people are poor but uh yeah no the people who live there year round are like normal working class people but uh yeah, the the uh, gesture of sending them to the Jeffrey Epstein Island in the, in DeSantis's head does not connect at all. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and they also sent maybe this was Abbott sent the bus to uh, the Naval Observatory, which is where the vice president lives, to own Kamala. Uh, Owned. Wait a minute. She lives in a Naval Observatory. That's the official yeah. residence of the vice president. Oh, it's what? just like a house in D.C. I've walked by it. I've never it's, thought about this. I don't know why I thought. What they makes lived it here. a naval observatory? Is there a lighthouse? Um, I think it's a lighthouse. A house? Does she live in a lighthouse? <laughs> Does the vice president live in a lighthouse? Does she live in a lighthouse? You were just there. Is she a mermaid? That's a real question. <laughs> she is disarmingly beautiful. I, I think there's a telescope there. Um, and you know but, how it kind of seems like she doesn't know how to talk? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. she, she traded something. Right. <laughs> something away to some kind of sea witch. I mean, she like, was top cop in the Bay Area, right? That is a bay. She the came bay area. out of Fisherman's Wharf. Whoa. They caught her and then made her the DA. The Lion Media doesn't want you to know about the mermaid vice president. Doug does kind of have an Eric vibe. Yeah, he does have an Eric vibe. And her, their freak niece. <laughs> Ursula is, uh, what's her name? Ella. Ella. <laughs> I don't think it's nice to call her a freak niece. She's <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> like a hipster girl. Aesthetic I was trying to, to remember her name. <laughs> I need like a placeholder word, you know? Her you daughter. can think that... it all you want, but don't say it. I guess she's <laughs> never... of the show, Ella. Apparently, she lives around here. I've never seen her around. Oh, that makes a hundred 
percent sense to me. Of course, she lives around here. <laughs> Where else Go should we live? Outside, look at people. But I've never seen her. You, you know, we've just established she's not on Martha's Vineyard year-round, just for a few months in the summer. <laughs> I guess I forget there are people here who just they probably she probably like puts on a mask when she leaves her apartment building, goes directly downstairs into a car that has a security service, secret service guy who drives her. Bro, she, oh, she probably looks How like do- every like. I'm, I'm, I think maybe. Anya Vols is Ella Emhoff. <laughs> I, th- I think I know like six to twelve Ella Emhoffs. <laughs> they make them. They print them over here. Did <laughs> I ever tell you my story about how when I was working at Roberta's, I served a beer to Malia Obama, uh-huh. underage. She came in and she, I knew she was underage because I just knew who she was because she's famous. And she was with these two huge guys who were like clearly secret service but they were like our mission today is to go to bushwick so dress <laughs> like a bushwick guy oh, really? what were they wearing they had like you know our hair you know and like <laughs> <laughs> you know like hoodies and, yeah uh, he had a hoodie that just said foe out of here on it <laughs> yeah. just posted up but she uh my friend so i was working with another person and the way that restaurant that takeout place works is that if you want to get a beer you go grab it from the cooler and you bring it up to the counter and you pay for it and she brought a Budweiser up and I was like wait this person is famously underage (laughs) and I was also like is this Malia Obama or am I just racist and imagining and like you know you see a famous person sometimes you're not sure I don't know what she looks like in my head like off Uh, of the dome you know was Eddie Murphy (laughs) Mushu yeah I was like having that moment (laughs) So I turned to my friend I'm working with, and she's like, is that Malia? I was like, thank God. Okay. <laughs> We're both on the same page. That's Malia Obama. She's underage. Um, I'm like, oh, I'll just card her, you know? Yeah. So problem solved. So I go, uh, yes, this is your ID. And she hands me an ID, and it does, it says, it's some lady. It just yeah. says some name, and I'm like, oh, Oh, this fuck. is Schwartz Vanderbilt. I just made this whole thing up in my head. This is just some lady. And I was like, oh, okay, that'll be $5. And then she hands me the credit card, and the credit card says Malia Obama. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> she has a fake ID, and she just put me through this whole like psychological loop-de-loop roller coaster thing. That's when I realized that was Ella Emhoff. <laughs> but uh, then I illegally served her. Yeah, you never know if that's going to be a sting by the Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> to get your bar <laughs> uh, uh, penalized. Well, I was like, do I get in more trouble if I do or if I don't? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't she just have one of the Secret Service guys get the beer? and Whatever. I well, I'm sure she's of, annoyed they're there. That's my point, yeah. is that if Ella Emhoff lives around life. here, she's just walking around doing whatever the fuck she wants, and then there's two guys following her, just like cleaning up all the... Does the know, VP get Secret Service for the whole family? Yeah. I How many so. people work for the Secret Service? A couple hundred. Apparently, they're pretty, or they were pretty bad at it. Like, it, it's kind of a miracle that Obama wasn't assassinated because they're, they would, I mean, there's that whole scandal. Always playing they, Xbox, always working on their new song in the garage. Yeah. Living in a lighthouse, <laughs> protecting the president. But I can't imagine, like, there must have been, there's so many people who wanted to kill Obama that maybe it was just a different agency that actually took care of it. 
and the Secret Service. <laughs> yeah, they contracted it out. That would be very yeah. American of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're actually having the guys, the, the guys who protect um, the uh, New York Jets in here. <laughs> we have the security team from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I am not a merman. I am not a merman. You know, for a while, well, I'm, to be clear. Job I'm not was, from the sea. They did currency stuff. Like, they busted counterfeiters, and then presidents kept getting, like, was Lincoln was killed, and they were like, oh, that was real shame, but no way that's going to happen again. And then, like, a few years later, Garfield got killed. Uh, and then they were like, Old I guess we have to fucking, or it might have even been longer, it might have been after. Uh, I've been capped in the back of the skull. McKinley? <laughs> He's just thinking it, though. No one can hear yeah, him. Because he, he doesn't actually talk. Well, Garfield's a cat. That is. Well, you know who else is not a cat? Is this great guest we've got lined up. <laughs> He's a cat in the, the colloquial He's sense. one cool cat. Right. You know who else is one cool cat? He is a labor-oriented cat. A uh, reporter <laughs> for Labor Notes who uh, has been doing, actually does a um, great newsletter every week, Who Gets the Bird? That keeps you updated on labor issues. It's called the "Who Gets the Bird." Uh huh. He is a cat. That's yeah. I he could be. This is all by design. I had this written down. I'm sure he's at least a cat guy, a cat person. Sure. Now you got to ask him. Damn it! Okay. You can't be sure of that. I I don't want to ask him. It feels uh, you have me. to ask him that. That's how it opens. <laughs> Slip it Write in the it end. down. <laughs> Pull out your phone. Ask him if he's if he likes cats. Ask him a bunch of serious questions, and at the end, ask the cat questions. Are you a cat? You got to open with the cat. No, ask him if he likes <laughs> cats. <laughs> okay. All right. All right let's see what he does. Are you a cat? All right. Um, and he has a new piece out about the rail situation. Uh, a strike. Some are saying was averted, but was it? We shall see. Um, and to give us some more info on that, let's talk to Jonah Furman. All right, we are now joined by Jonah Furman, who is a labor reporter, the author of a weekly newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, as well as a writer for Labor Notes. Thank you for joining us, Jonah. Yeah, thanks. And I have to ask, where does the name for Who Gets the Bird come from? People are wondering if it's cat-related at all. Uh, is it? And what's the the genesis of that that wonderful name? Oh, the Genesis, you know, it was sort of like uh, true labor nerds would get it. But it's famous quote from uh, John Lewis, who is the coal miners union uh, president in the 30s, who basically he was like a confusing politically guy. He was like had issues with FDR. He was a Republican um, and he worked with all these communists and was like uh, people were like, why do you let these communists, you know, have staff positions and run your union and stuff like that? And his response was, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? Basically being like, I'm using the communists to organize a big union. Um, mm. But, you know, for like the left, it's been sort of this phrase that's, that has stuck throughout the labor movement of like, you know, what is it? Like, we're working in these unions. We're, we're trying to build something like a socialist movement. We're working in unions that are often conservative or, you know, not putting the po- political part of it first. So that question is like 
that rhetorical question is sort of from the from the left's perspective in the labor movement too is like uh what are we doing here you know <laughs> uh but there's also a nice double meaning there because uh you know like the blog started as like uh whose fault is this like the the middle finger of bird it's like who gets the bird for the failed state of the labor movement in the u.s right my vulgarian mind immediately went to the the middle finger and yes no it it, it it plays both ways yeah yeah uh, but we are speaking today, a few days after a a sort of tentative, it feels like, decision was reached uh, between a number of rail unions and their their management, uh, thanks to the the leadership of Mr. Uh, President Biden, uh, who is taking credit for a settlement. He's, he's according to him, this is a settled deal. Um, but what is the the reality with this agreement, and uh, what were the factors that went into um, the threat of a strike and a lockout in the first place? Yeah, I mean it's an, it's it's a convoluted story in some ways, but the the punchline of this week was basically like we were at the brink of the first legal moment when there could be a strike or a lockout, and it looked like for a bunch of reasons it was going to happen. Functionally, when that happens on the rails in this country, it shuts down the entire freight rail system, which something like 40% of our goods rely on. It's like a huge deal in terms of just moving the economy. So we were really close to that. And essentially what happened is there was a midnight meeting, a 20-hour session with the remaining unions who didn't have a deal. Um, and they announced a tentative agreement, which is a formal term uh, in the labor movement that basically means you have a deal that needs to get ratified by the membership of the union and just having any deal uh pushes that date back now what people are sort of not appreciating uh and not just as a formalistic whatever like it you know has to go through a ratification process like uh, I think we very much could still see a rail strike um, if you just dig into how this stuff works like it goes to a vote the members of these unions, it's really hard to tell, you know, what's going to happen, but like, it seems quite uh, plausible that they would reject it. The deadline has shifted to a new date that hasn't been announced yet. But essentially, if they reject it, and we reach the time deadline, we're at the exact same spot we were. Um, so people are celebrating, that's as much to sort of sell the deal, and to get some good PR, and to sort of give the vibe that it's over. But it's not in any sense over. And if you remember the John Deere strike from last year, which I feel like is probably the most prominent big strike that people remember, that was the result of a rejected tentative agreement three times in a row. So, you know, it's not it's not just like check the box, do it. Like if you can't pass the contract and you reach your strike deadline, it's it's the same as we were this week. So people are really breathing a sigh of relief. And I think a lot of that is politics, um, but there's still very much a strike on the table until this thing gets ratified by the membership by a by a vote. Yeah, so it's definitely possible at this point. Um, it was interesting to learn that rail workers, I believe, are not covered under the NLRA. They're in kind of a strange position uh, legally and economically, um, and in, in many ways are are not threatening to strike or, or fighting for a strike just for pay. There's a lot of other conditions that they're um, 
opposing and agitating against. Uh, can you speak to, to some of those and, and the impetus behind wanting uh, a strike in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth understanding. We don't have to go all the way into it, the Real Labor Act. I mean, in the U.S., the, the, the original labor movement is on the railroads. And the biggest, maybe the biggest strike or the most violent sort of uprising, what people say we're the closest to like an insurrection was 1877, 1877 railroad strike. But then you had all these famous strikes. That's where Eugene Debs comes from. The Railway Labor Act is from 1926, I think, after the 1922 rail, railroad strike where 200 or 400,000 workers struck. And they this was before the New Deal, before they were like unions are legal at all. But they said, we need some situation on the rails that will stabilize this. We need something in the federal government to be like, here's the rules. Here's how the contracts work. Here's when it expires. Here's when you're allowed to strike, when you're not allowed to strike. Because it wasn't working to just send out the National Guard and shoot the strikers, which is was the original strategy, basically. Um, it just kept happening. The railroads were just having unrest after unrest after unrest. So they invented the Railway Labor Act, and it creates different rules that are just strange and arcane and just not. It, it, it also, because it's from an earlier time, basically, it puts the federal government way more directly involved in negotiations, which is why you have Congress playing a role like John Deere strike. There was no question Congress was going to play a role. It just legally is in a different framework. And also it wasn't 100,000 of the most essential workers. I mean, it was an important strike. But okay, so that's the Railway Labor Act. We can talk about it. Um, in terms of the issues, you know, I think uh, the thing people need to understand is like the past five to 10 years, there's been this new system on the railroads called uh, precision scheduled railroading. And essentially what it is, is in other places, they call it just-in-time production or lean production. It's it's basically saying we're going to cut to the bone and we're going to just like focus on minimizing cost of operations and efficiency, maximizing inefficiency of operations. In the railroads, it's way more intense because these are monopolies functionally. So there's six carriers that are the big carriers that we're actually talking about, but they all have different geographies. So it's like they're not competing with each other, right? If you need to ship something from New Mexico to Chicago or whatever it is, there's one rail carrier you're likely to use. And your other option is like put it on a truck or a plane, which just the economics are terrible for it. And for some stuff, it just can't can't be done. It has to go on a, a rail car. So they do the cut to the bone stuff, but there's no way out for the customer, the businesses who ship on the rails or people who need the rails, right? So they can just keep cutting and keep cutting. So Here's a stat. In the past six years, they've reduced their workforce by about 30 percent. So and meanwhile, you know, in the pandemic, especially stuff has gone. The amount of people using shipments and shipping stuff has gone up because people are traveling less. So there's more stuff being shipped to, to where the people are, uh, are are sitting. So anyway, you you basically have I mean, it's classic like do more with less, except on the railroads. It's obscene. I mean, just the scale cutting 30 percent of your workforce is crazy well uh you know well um well business goes up activity on the rails goes up so you know you could talk to different rail workers and they'll say xyz issues of course pay is an issue wages are always an issue especially with the insane profits that these companies make it's really hard as a worker to see that my boss just got a 15% raise as the ceo this year he's making 20 million dollars they did stock buybacks you know all this stuff that's hard to see and then see you're going to get, you know, 75 cents an hour or whatever it's going to be for your deal. So wages are a thing. Healthcare is a big thing that people haven't talked about in the strike that much. 
Um, you know, there's there's basically a dispute about capping the healthcare costs, shifting those healthcare costs to the employee. Um, and just like everywhere else, you don't know what the healthcare costs are going to be because healthcare infinitely rises, and it's these insurance companies that basically gouge whatever they want. And but okay, so but the big headline thing is the time, just the time off of the job. And what people should understand about railroad jobs, not all railroad jobs, but the operating crafts, which are mostly the people who ride the trains, that's like half of the workforce. And those were the big holdouts in this in this uh, rather negotiations. Essentially, you're and, and they've they've done new policies in this precision scheduled stuff, but essentially you're on call all the time. So you have maybe I, I've heard 30 days off for some workers where you're not on call. You're not expected to be there. Now, when I say 30 days off, I mean. If you counted your days off, you're counting Saturday, Sunday. That's 104 days off in a year. There's no Saturday, Sunday for these workers. They're on call unless they're on one of these 30 out of 365 days. If you're on call, it means you're sitting next to your phone. You're ready to go to the yard in some set amount of time. Maybe it's an hour or two to get there, to get on a train. And you don't know how long your shift is. And when it's over, you have a very small amount of mandated rest time between them until you're called back. And unless you are on one of your 30 special days, you need to come in or you get fired. So there's stories of people who got hospitalized for COVID and got fired. There's people who had to go to a funeral and got fired or got like some severe deductions on their attendance policy and things like that. So essentially what happened is the deal that was put forward had big raises comparatively to what rail workers usually get. The biggest raises in 40 years, about 24% over four years, five years. So it's something like 5% a year. But it had no nothing to do with the time off stuff. So the workers, I mean, your median worker who's facing the time off issue is like, cool, more money. The money is not for most of these workers, the big issue. The issue is I can't do anything with the money. I can never spend the money. I can't see anyone, can't See, my family can't ever travel, can't have to be near my rail yard all the time, basically working all the time. So you could say the thing that people keep celebrating about the deal is 14% raise immediately, you know, 5% raise, some retroactive pay, all this stuff. That's good. But the, the recommendation from the government, the first recommendation had one additional day off and they get no sick time, meaning you cannot go to the doctor. Uh, you know, if you get sick and you, your day, you're on tomorrow and you're called in, if you don't go in, you are risking getting fired from your job. It's like you're on a probation period and the, you know, like people treat their new jobs, but for you're a 30 year employee and that's true for you. So I would say those are the big, that's the big contours of it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there to, to digest, but, um, do you think just based on the, the workers you've talked to, uh, that this deal will be ratified or, or how likely, I know it's hard to make predictions, but how likely do you think there will be a, an actual strike? Okay. Well, the things that are, I know everything I answer here is like, okay, we got to do, but it's really, <laughs> I mean, this is like where the details matter. Yeah. Um, talking to the workers, the first thing people say, first of all, some people are just like, fuck you. I'm striking. I'm going to vote no forever. I'm so angry how how poorly I've been treated basically over the past five years. So there is that group. The more more common group are people who are like, I have no idea what's in the deal. Marty Walsh tweets at 5 a.m. We got a deal. It has some sort of sick time. There's like three press releases that have slightly different language. And like 
have to understand a union contract is like, you know, a hundred pages. It's like you need a lawyer to understand it. I mean, most union members are like lawyers about their union contract. Uh, and it matters if it says, you know, you have sick time for only approved policies. Do I need a note? Does Do they have to approve it? If they don't approve it, what happens? You know, like if you, if you don't have the language, it's really hard to be like, this is a good deal. So all workers know right now is there's something about expanded unpaid sick time. And some of the releases seem to say that there's a cap on how much you could pay for healthcare monthly, which is 400 bucks a month, which is not a low cap. So taking the what we knew before that Marty Walsh deal was announced, we knew that from internal polling and from some of the unions that already voted, at least some of these unions had like 80% rejection rate. So the question is, does, does that move, does unpaid sick time and a $400 monthly cap on your healthcare move it 31 points, basically think of it like you need to get 51% to pass it, right? The other thing I'll say about it is that this is not um, one contract. This is 10 contracts, 12 contracts across 12 different unions. So there's, it only takes one of these unions to vote it down. And some of the unions are, you know, not that big, but you could have, there's 125,000 members we're talking about. If a union of 5,000 of them votes it down and goes on strike, it'll shut down the whole system. And the other unions, for the most part, will honor the picket line or different unions have different rules about this. But like in 1992, that's the last national shutdown we had. And it was one union on one employer, and it provoked a national lockout. Um, so the question of whether there's going to be a rail strike is not really like, are 60,000 workers going to vote no? It's like, mm -hmm. is one of these unions going to vote it down and hit the deadline and decide to walk? And that raises the odds significantly. You know, there's just, there's just, it's just e easier. You know, it's, <laughs> I know it's complicated, but basically like you could have one smaller union or even a big union vote it down and go out. And then it's just as if they had all 100% had rejected it. The rails will shut down. Congress will have to intervene. So I just don't really see, you know, the numbers being there. I think the most likely way that this passes is members are like, damn, they didn't pull the trigger when we had the leverage. Now it's going to go to Congress again. I don't want to roll the dice um, because basically Congress can impose a deal. So I don't know. Yeah, well... I, well, that's yeah. So it only really takes one uh, union, and they all have to go with it. That's um, solidarity in action. Uh, well, hopefully, yeah. um, cool to see. Uh, but elsewhere in labor world, we're now passing, I believe, two hundred Starbucks stores uh, that have unionized. Um, you mentioned the, I think you mentioned the National Labor Relations Board. They're right now um, sort of underfunded, but they're trying to. Um, do their jobs actually for once in, in several decades uh, in regulating Starbucks. But Howard Schultz has really been um, flaunting labor law and, you know, illegally trying to give some workers pay raises who are not unionized. Um, what are the prospects for him actually and, and Starbucks um, starting to respect the, the law? And, and what is that? Um, hold in store for the prospect of, of more because 200 sounds like a lot. It is still, you know, a small fraction of Starbucks stores in Toto in, in the United States. Um, but 
what kind of friction do you see there with uh, with Schultz and the Starbucks management um, working with the NLRB? Do you think they'll eventually um, start cooperating, or, or do you just see a, a more more of an assault going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I would try to put into perspective the Starbucks and, and Amazon uh, relationship to the NLRB over the past six months. These two companies have both gone after the board in a way that is like, it's not like they're like trying to get away with stuff, be sneaky. They're like challenging the board directly. They're saying you've, you're colluding with the unions. Uh, Starbucks filed a motion to have no more union votes across the country. Amazon got their case for the, for the Staten Island uh, union that, that was organized. They got it moved to Arizona because they said the local board has colluded with the union. They're going for the throat of the administrative state of our you know, labor regime, basically. So I think the question is sort of, we know the NLRB is underfunded. We know that the corporate lawyers can hold this thing up, uh, you know, hold these things up in, in serious ways. I think it's going to come down to like, where does it get kicked somewhere else? And I think the thing I and a lot of other people are watching is like, does this go to the Supreme Court? Basically, do they find a way to say the National Labor Relations Board's actions, though legal under their current system or whatever, are unconstitutional for X, Y, Z reason? I can't run my business. And and if so, does like this insanely reactionary Supreme Court go back to literally like 1920s jurisprudence of like labor contracts or private contracts that cannot be in, infringed upon by any other actors. It's this doctrine called Lochner that basically said, you know, unions in most forms and most of the things they do are illegal, unconstitutional. Um, now that's like sort of the extreme scenario, but I think that's what's going to break the impasse that, or just, just breaking these unions through, illegal stall tactics, firing a ton of people, showing workers across the country that actually things can't get better. You know, like there's a lot of it that is sort of like on a public opinion sort of level, right? So like if you see that Howard Schultz and uh, Jeff Bezos can just do whatever they want, it changes your calculus as a worker saying, does it seem worth it to try, you know? And that's been the thing that has... I mean, the thing that's so amazing about Starbucks, 250 stores or whatever it is at this point, like you said, it's out of 9,000. It's not that people think that we're almost there. We've unionized the whole thing. It's that people think, oh, like I can try and do that. And that's why you see organizing drives at like Chipotle and at Geico and at, you know, um, Trader Joe's is because people are looking at Amazon and Starbucks workers who have unionized successfully, won at least a vote, if not a contract, and are saying, oh, why why can't I do that? I mean, I've literally talked to workers who are like, I just saw that Starbucks did it. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. We can do that too. So I think it's going to basically exist in this like protracted war between the board and these corporations until it either escalates on the side of the law, um, probably the Supreme Court, or it escalates on the side of the unions of, you know, strike activity or organizing enough density that basically forces these employers to, to live with it. Um, but I, I, I do think it's like seriously boiling. I think the next couple of years are going to be uh, kind of definitive for, for how the labor movement uh, exists in this country. Right. And, and one thing that'll be interesting to see 
uh, going forward is is the Teamsters, who have a, a new president um, who's kind of promised to be to be a reformer. Um, how do you think he's lived up to that? That's the Sean O'Brien uh, who came in running against a handpicked uh, successor to Jimmy Hoffa Jr. Um, who is running and, and or is running the Teamsters um, up against a new contract, I believe, in the coming year for for UPS. And a few years ago, they kind of shoved it down the members' throats. But now it seems like there's going to be a different process. Um, what do you what what's the preview of that? What's that going to look like? And and how ugly is it is it going to get? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like like talking about Starbucks, Amazon, Trader Joe's. That's sort of the non-union manifestation of like workers are pissed off and something's going to change in the unions. I mean, the rail stuff is part of this too, but in the John Deere is part of it too. In the unions, you see basically status quo, how the unions have existed for 30 years is also getting shaken up. So the last time UPS struck was in 97. And that was because very similarly, they had their first ever uh, democratic elections among the membership. Uh, Important group called Teamsters for a Democratic Union played this role in winning that right to vote and then electing this reformer whose name was Ron Carey out of the New York City local. They elected him in 91. In 97, they go on a huge strike, win big things at UPS. Um, And it became, you know, I mean, it's the biggest strike of our lifetimes. Then for, you know, in that union for 25 years, it went back to this very sleepy status quo. Um, There was no strikes at UPS. There was no major improvements, things got a lot worse for UPS workers. And then last year, they, this Teamsters for a Democratic Union, again, sort of tapped this vein with a group called Teamsters United that elected new leadership that I think is sort of going to replay it. I mean, like, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we're echoing this moment that is sort of forgotten now in the early to mid 90s, when people felt like there was a new labor movement, like one generation had, had, had passed, there was, you know, Bill Clinton was very exciting for some workers, for some from some of the labor movement before and after and things like that. There was new leadership, the AFL-CIO. There was new Teamster leadership. Um, and I I mean, looking at talking to Teamsters, I know like O'Brien seems to be committed. You hear him talk about the company. He talks about it like someone who's going to fight the company. Their contract expires August 1st of next year. They have 300,000 workers at UPS now. They've been holding rallies. They've been doing the serious um, run-up to a strike that you would expect. So they're talking to their members about start saving money now. They're doing parking lot rallies. They're doing pledge drives. They're building out the infrastructure to do that. Um, So, you know, I think that's credible. I expect... I, th- I think, I mean, there is, of course, the the theoretical possibility that UPS caves on core demands. One of the things at that uh, job that is most egregious and is, is from the 2018 contract that members rejected and then had imposed on them uh, by the union and the company was um, the creation of basically a driver who is making less than a driver. It's called a 22-4 is a new classification that was said you could work on different dates, like work more weekends and make less money. Um, So, you know, maybe if the company is really scared and watches what's happening elsewhere, but, you know, that's why stuff like the rail, the rail strike and rail negotiations is so important is not just because for those rail workers, but it's because this feeling workers are looking to each other. They're looking at Starbucks, they're looking at the rails, they're looking at UPS, they're looking at Sean O'Brien, they're trying to figure out like, is this legit? Are we doing this? Is this the time? Can we win? Um, 
so you know on UPS, yeah, I, I think everyone, next time you see your UPS driver, you should ask them about the strike next year. And that can be your test. How, you know, like how, how well organized are they? Right. But in my experience, you ask, ask a guy wearing the Browns and he knows that contracts up, we're going to fight. Uh, and a lot of people talk about 97, like, you know, this is like this golden moment that they had when, when they struck for 15 days. Um, I do think 2023 will probably probably go down similar yeah i'll definitely be exciting to watch um one elephant in the room though i feel like is is the federal reserve kind of looming in the background and you know i, I don't know if they've said this explicitly but uh a lot of people i think have speculated with good reason that they are threatened by this upsurge call it what you will in in labor militancy and really want to uh, loosen the labor market and m- perhaps force a, a recession. Um, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the labor movement? And are uh, the workers you talk to concerned about that? Well, one thing I would say is like thinking about everyone's talking about Volcker and the Volcker shock in the 70s when the Fed basically decided we are going to, uh, you know, just totally destroy the economy for workers so that we can take control back. Um, one thing that's different now, and I know, you know, I'm very proud of the labor movement we have now and all the new movement and things we're seeing, but, you know, in the seventies, there was this thing called the wage price spiral where there was all this inflation. And then there was wages that were, were, were keeping up with the inflation, partly because you had a lot more union density and a lot more union activity in a way, I feel like because our labor movement is weaker than it was in the 70s and and certainly weaker than what the people in the 70s were thinking about the 60s the 50s the 40s um they're kind of you know the capitalists are kind of sleeping at the wheel sometimes they are not as scared of this labor movement which means they will not act as aggressively towards it in in a paradoxical way now the question is can labor you know extend this moment this opening um before they induce a recession I don't know, but I think it's it's slightly different dynamic where like, you know, if if there's a big labor labor upsurge so far this year, what what there's been has all felt like a sneak attack to 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 capital, you know, um, the question is, how long can that last? But, you know, in terms of the Fed shocking us into a recession, things like that, um, there's. There was a lot of strike activity in the 70s and 80s. There's there is strike activity during recessions. One of the biggest strikes strike moments, uh, you know, in in my conscious life was during the 07-08 recession. The the auto sector saw some big strikes, big activity. It's not good for the labor movement for you know job loss, but it certainly does shake things up. Um, and it, and it, it makes a lot of people wake up, you know, the stuff we saw in rail is like the industry has gotten so bad that workers are more ready to move. So I wonder too, like if the fed goes too hard, will they provoke workers in a way that they haven't as bad as things have been, it's been for a lot of people, it's been a slower erosion. If they decide tomorrow that we're going to just cut people's, you know, cut, cut people's legs off at the knees, they could see a lot more people provoked by that. Um, which you know, could mean uh, a more successful fight back. I know that's all, it's all tea leaves, but it's like yeah. thinking about how your average worker is going to respond. It's like, there's anger, there's, de- there's demoralization, there's organization. And those are the three things that I'm like, if you, if you, if you play them right, they actually could mean 
uh, some serious resistance to that behavior. Yeah. Um, well, one question I want to end on, which kind of goes back to the the opening um, thing you were saying about the who gets the bird with uh, union conservatism. I um, over the summer did a little electoral work, and one thing I found um, from talking to talking to labor unions is or union members is that the unions are really reluctant to endorse challengers to incumbent uh, Democrats. Um, not always opposed to endorsing progressives. Um, they, they'll endorse some pretty, pretty strong progressives. But if you're going up and against an incumbent, they tend to hedge their bets uh, because if you know that challenger loses, then they they have a bad relationship going forward with the incumbent. Um, how do you think the left in general can kind of get uh, the labor movement or or the labor movement itself to get the unions to? Uh, be willing to challenge Democratic incumbents and make even bigger uh, political risks in, in going in the future. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing I would just say is like the thing you said about they're scared that the challenger will lose and then the incumbent will not like them. It's even more like systemic than that. What they are worried about is that the relationship with the party in general will be worse off. Mm. One seat, two seats, even one bill that they could get passed is worth less to a lot of these, the, the political strategy there than being like, generally the Democrats like us, the leadership care what we have to think and we, we're we not pariahs to them. And they live in fear basically of being like, uh, if we step out, then like, what if they don't pick up our call? But then they never, that leads you to never call about anything that matters anyway. So, you know, it's like this, it's whatever, it's this cycle of it. I mean, I think the left's role, if you want to talk about like moving the unions towards something more ambitious and more progressive or more militant or anything like that is like a lot of the work we have to do is just rebuilding the connections there. Like, I wonder, I mean, I was thinking about this this week and I don't want to be a jerk, but like, I just wonder how many people on the left, like talk to a real worker this week and ask them what's going on with you. What do you think of the thing? You know, and had a conversation. It doesn't even have to be about politics, but just making that connection back. Like the hope for a left labor movement is going to have to rely on the left and the labor movement reintegrating on some level. And a lot of that is on the personal level. A lot of it is like people on the left are like the majority of people on the left, or at least whatever, the vibe of people on the left or whatever is like people like me, people who went to college and then saw things getting worse and decided this, you know, this relative displacement of my prospects is concerning to me and something should change. It's not like a hundred years ago is a lot more deeply embedded in the railroad workers and in the, in not just these fancy old, whatever, not just like the blue collar stereotype, but also just like people who were in the unions were also in some of the left organizations. And that connection at the bottom is changes the calculus for people who are making the political decisions at the top. So until we build some more connection, I mean, my main thing is mostly just like, if you think of yourself as a leftist, you should go out and meet some union members in the big strikes, go to a picket line and meet somebody and talk to them. Don't talk to them about like, will you sign my thing? But talk to them about like, what's going on with you? Stay in touch. Can I support you? Here's why I support you. And let's just build a relationship and it's you know it's like it's not going to happen next election cycle necessarily um it could but like you know i think a lot of what what our job on the left is 
to do is get back in touch with what are workers fighting for? How can we help? Um, and how can we connect that to a bigger political vision? Yeah, that really reminds me of uh, something that I saw that gave me a little hope uh, recently was Bernie Sanders was in the UK uh, supporting their rail strike, which I believe is ongoing. Um, and he was gave, gave kind of his boilerplate regular speech, but he said something in there that uh, that in the US, he said, we're trying to combine our progressive movement with our labor movement, um, which is, yeah, to me, that's that's the goal. And I, I thank you for uh, for giving us some some more background information on it. Uh, yeah, where, where can where can people find more of your work? Um, people should check out Labor Notes. You can go to labornotes.org. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. It's probably the best way to, uh, for better or worse. Uh, you know, I have like, when there's big strikes, I have like workers be like, oh, I made a Twitter account to follow you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's just, just give me your email. We'll talk. But uh, yeah, labornotes.org is, is, is one good place and Twitter is another. All right. Jonah Furman, thanks again. Thank you. back with Jake Flores and Anders Lee. Anders Lee's still here. Little baby Alex. Wow. I'm the baby. All right. Not the mama. I think <laughs> we have to. This is the last podcast we do that. Yeah. button. Uh, what a great interview. It's kind of like making me like sick is lose my sick? mind <laughs> like, i don't know <laughs> oh, green behind the gills there isn't he it's just playing in my head at all times now that weird song that's how you know you wrote a good one yeah it's good enough to go on the roadcaster bro yeah it's one of those like royalty free things you want it, like if you you know make a short or something it's like oh now we get to add music here's the fun part and all of them sound like that and yeah, like nothing you can like the ones that come on the keyboards. Yeah, the Casio keyboards. You ever you, you know you ever listen to Wesley Willis? Uh huh. Like every song was just him pressing that button and then rambling. Uh, really? Yeah, oh, you shit. never. When you listen to Wesley Willis, you never figure that out. It's the same song a hundred times. Damn it! Okay. <laughs> I thought he was at least like composing his own music. No, that oh, was the boy. whole point of it. It was that he was just pressing the that button. Zutalor. And then just saying weird shit, and everyone was like, you know, he's like outsider art. Yeah. No, I knew he was, you know. Anders knew that. (laughs) Rock on Chicago. Wait, Daniel Johnston, was he also doing that? Yeah, he would just press the acoustic guitar, and then it would play. (laughs) What do you mean? He he played like instruments, right? Yeah, he was was actually, okay, he he knew what he was doing musically. Yeah. He knew that other guy knew what he was doing. Well, let's get the hell out of here, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes, folks. Um, Twitch is going to be popping off this football season. I meant to start doing this this week for week one, but uh, there was flooding in my our apartment, so gallons of water started coming to the ceiling, so I couldn't uh, stream about the NFL. But you every- couldn't stream because you were getting streamed on. Literally. Literally. But, uh, yeah, every Tuesday... I'm going to be doing these probably around 3 o'clock most Tuesdays, EST. I will be talking football uh, stuff. Um, also, would have been a great time to hit the button, but we're done with it now. <laughs> no more. I cannot oh, take man, another I can, I can, drop. It's a football song. I can hear it in my head. Kind of, yeah, actually. It's probably was used in an arena football broadcast at one point. But uh, if you are in New York City and you're Ella Emhoff and you're listening... <laughs> 
feel free to come, please come, to Botanical Comedy, which is going to be at Misfit Kava next weekend, uh, Saturday, September 24th. And that's going to be at 9 p.m. And it's going to be a lot of fun. we got some great comics on the show. Uh, Kenise Mobley, Yadoye Travis. We also got Kelly Bachman, Colin Burgess, me, Anders Lee, will be hosting. So make sure to come out for that. And it's free. God, I wanted to play it while you we're were done with the buttons. Names, it would have been perfect. That's what it's for. I don't want to hear it again. With Kenny Smobley, Travis. I, all my shows are kind of far away. You can just follow my Twitter at this point. I uh, I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> You'll you really figure it out. It. You really got to want to follow it. You got to figure it out yourself. Do some work. Do some work for once in your life. Stop trying to be Mickey with the magic wand and be Mickey before when he's mopping the floor. You mop the floor yourself. You take off your stupid wizard hat. I'm going to mop the floor with your ass if you keep up that that sass mouth you got running. You're disappointing your wizard. Jake, you got anything coming up? Um, No, I quit uh, live entertainment to work for the summer. I'm learning... Uh, life lessons and bettering myself through work, which makes you um, free. Yeah, it sets you <laughs> free. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Good to know. hear you're free. No new stuff soon, but uh, soon, soon, soon. Nothing, nothing nailed down yet. Soon, I think I'll open for soon. a band pretty soon, but I forgot what the date is. That's dope. Okay, well, I'm gonna play it anyway. Like, I feel like if it goes away, a part of me is gone now. Like, it feels like I need to be in this all the time now. Like, it's like a blanket or something. Everyone's taking off their headphones except for me. It's finished. Yeah, it's finished. It's finished.